Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Charlie Gao, a member of the team at the North Asia Centre of Asia Pacific Excellence. Today on the Council's platform, we're pleased to share an event organised by us that we held recently called Post-COVID New Zealand's Mahi in the Region. This podcast shares contributions from our panellists, economist and commentator Shamabil Ekib, two-time New Zealand ambassador to China John McKinnon, and University of Auckland Deputy Vice-Chancellor Professor Jenny Dixon. For an extended video of the event, please check our website www.northasiacape.org.nz. The video should be up in a couple of weeks' time. So please enjoy the podcast. Thanks. Kira, thanks for having me here today. So Charlie gave me a really broad brief, so I brought about 20 pages of notes. <laughs> I'm kidding. I usually don't write notes, but the reason I brought notes is because this is something that's been percolating in my mind since um, the whole COVID thing started. And essentially, the, what I want to talk to you about today is not necessarily specifically about trade. I'll get to that in the end, but much more about how I think we're living through history and we're living through regime change. This is the final kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And for me, it's started with the whole kind of understanding of how this thing was affecting us. It has completely reshaped our understanding of economics, politics, the assumptions that we make, the consensus that binds us together. When the pandemic first hit, it was very much a thing that was happening in China. So we thought, oh, let's look at SARS. A week later, we thought, let's look at the GFC. A week later, we thought, let's look at the Great Depression. So the escalation was pretty quick. And so it really rocked us to our core to kind of understand how this was going on. And for me, the thing that really came through was that this is not the first thing that is challenging the ways that we think about our economy and geopolitics and politics. And that's because what happened 10 years ago with the GFC also questioned many of the assumptions that we have made about how the economy works, who wins, who loses, and whether or not the current system of doing things is actually working to deliver the values that we profess to have. My view is that there is a current consensus which has been held together by inertia rather than any real evidence that how we're doing things is actually delivering what we want. And what we're watching right now is a slow degeneration of this post-war rules-based consensus, which has served New Zealand extraordinarily well. It has given us a presence in the global uh, multilateral setting, in trade, you name it. In almost every setting, New Zealand punches above its tiny, tiny dot at the end of the world. We actually matter in a global sense, and that is because there is a rules-based global order which has really helped us. I think this is going to be replaced by polarization. On one end, we're going to see a rise of imperialism, and the other has not yet been written. And our role is to write that and with, write that with partners who believe in the same values that we have. And that's because we cannot be imperialists. We're not big enough, we're not ugly enough, we're not strong enough. So we're going to have to think some ways to find allies to find this alternative fork in the path that's ahead. Now, why do I think the pandemic is going to be the catalyst for change? And, you know, when you look back through history, what we see is that large change happens only after multiple events build and build, and suddenly the dam breaks. I'd argue that what we have observed over the last 30 years is the dam has been building. We've been trying to run an experiment of a way of doing politics, economics, consensus, which I don't think can deliver all the things we want. And the inadequacies in particular that it has laid up for me have been around things like our approach to health. 
We should have been able to deal with the pandemic, yet we were unprepared. We had SARS and MERS, and we refused to learn the lessons of those pandemics. And so we were unprepared when it arrived. We were unprepared when it came to the impact on education. Look at all the kids who are now missing out on their education. On housing, we have the record number of people on wait lists. Welfare, we have suddenly, suddenly realized that when middle people lose jobs, that actually the welfare payments in New Zealand are not enough to live on with dignity. Or around immigration, that we actually use it as exploitation to run some of our key industries in our country. Or that we profess to want better health and education and welfare, but refuse to pay more in tax. There is a whole bunch of inconsistencies and dissonance in the way that we think about things. When I look around the world, the rise of populism, anti-globalism, these are not new things. They are a symptom of this lack of faith, lack of uh, consensus that is there around the global integration and cooperation that has really kind of shaped the post-war era, at least in my mind which was very much a progressive idea that pulled countries together for a number of decades, is now the same idea that is pulling them apart. And I think we must not forget that these things happen through time. Now, I know that I have a quite a depressing effect on people, so I wanted to start with a little bit of a case for optimism. And the optimism for me comes from, I think, New Zealand's ability to really find a new path that is the right path, one that is, I think, positive and good for the world and good for us. And the pandemic had a whole bunch of lessons for me. The first for me was around, we have to understand that as humans, we have a whole bunch of foibles, right? We don't understand what risk actually is. When something's in the future, we discount it. We'd rather have the thing that's right in front of us than deal with something that's really scary, but in the future. And to me, that is exactly what's happening with climate change, with uh, whether it's poverty, inequality, housing, whatever, you name it. We push everything to the side because we can deal with that later. The consequences of that are not immediate and not, not right in front of us. And they feel abstract until they whack us in the face and we wonder why we got whacked in the face. But also what I found was through this pandemic, we were able to all become experts on a virus, on a pandemic. We all started talking about our values and how the virus spreads and whether or not there are merits to the mask or whatever. When we are given a difficult problem, but we're equipped with good information and good communication, New Zealanders are able to find consensus. The level of compliance in New Zealand to the lockdowns was extraordinary. So if you look at things like Oxford's um, uh, restrictions index, what really becomes clear is that lots of countries had big restrictions, but very few countries had the level of compliance that we had in New Zealand. What's different about New Zealand is that we bought into what was required. There is a difference there, and I don't care what the political views are. It's much more about we pull together in a clear show of collectivism and consensus, which to me builds a very strong case for where New Zealand is different from a lot of other places. And when we talk about polarization and loss of the global order, I think these are the things that will put us in good stead. The pandemic will end. Right, right now it kind of feels like it's going on forever, but it's only been six months. And we know that in the next six months, we're going to find a vaccine and cure and all those other bits and pieces. Things will change. But the impact of the pandemic is not going to go away in six months' time. I think it's going to linger. I think when I think about the big issues that are there, we can make the choices that we always have with policies, right? I think what we see a lot of is when we see the problems, the inconsistencies in things, we go, oh, let's tweak the current policies that we have. Surely doing more of the same will get different results. Well, that's the definition of insanity. Or we can try and create new rules. 
Yeah, we've tried that a little bit too. Ultimately, I think where we're headed to now is we're having to find new goals, new ways of doing things, because what we are trying to do is not the right thing. And what I mean by that is a lot of the consensus that frames our thinking, that puts the boundaries around what we are willing to try, those are the very things that are constraining our ability to innovate and to change the way we do things. And I think people are getting wise to that fact. There are lots of things that New Zealanders claim to value. Apparently, we value housing access for all people, and yet our housing quality is shit. Our home ownership rate is the lowest level since the 1950s. We apparently care about poverty and inequality. Income equality in New Zealand has not improved for 30 years. 30 years of st pretty much steady economic growth, no improvement in equality. Do you really care about inequality? Why has that not improved, if that's the case? Apparently, we care about climate change, but we want to make no changes to emissions, to costs, to taxes. There are real inconsistencies. We say that we care about health, education, and justice. We want more and better quality. But at the same time, in the same breath, we say we want lower taxes. There is this inconsistency in the way that we want things. The current ways of doing things haven't delivered what we want. It is getting harder to believe that doing more of the same will get different results. Therein lies, I think, the reason why we're seeing change around the world. Where we are now is we're groping towards a new narrative. And when you look back through history, the Great Depression and the World Wars were probably the last time we had that big change in the way we did things. Before that, our economies were very laissez-faire, right? Small government, very few rules. You could pretty much do what you wanted within relative reason. And post that, we really saw the rise of Keynesianism. And then through the 50s and 60s, we saw the rise of monetarism. We saw the invention of independent central banks in the 80s. And those things have held us in pretty good stead. But those things are now a spent force. And in many ways, they became a spent force some time ago. The GFC took care of the central banks. They're no longer relevant. I unsubscribed from a whole bunch of emails from the Reserve Bank because, quite frankly, it doesn't matter. They can send me as many emails as they like, but they're not particularly effective, right? So if they're not in charge, who is? Well, who's in charge is the government. We've gone back in history. And those catalysts for change were very big things, right? Things that kind of went, our ways of understanding the economy no longer works. And that is exactly what's happening in the world. We have been told time and time again that globalization is good. But when you go to the Rust Belt in the U.S., they don't see it. They don't believe it. And those inconsistencies are important and real because that is what's creating a lot of the shifts in the way that we think about the global order right now. For me, what I think is going to happen is the pandemic is going to push back the power of driving the economy back to governments. And that is kind of scary for me because governments are not equipped to manage the economy because they gave that up decades ago. They don't have the capability. And so we're going to find some really whack stuff happening over the next few years. Um, but we were also asking some big questions, right? Do we need to pay back the hundreds of billions of dollars we're going to borrow? Does it matter? Should we print more money? Should, it, should we have MMT? No, they're not necessarily the right answers or right questions, but we're having some conversations that are way bigger. And those taboos that we had for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years have suddenly vanished. And this is when you start to see change. Around the world, the rise of populism, the backlash against globalizations and experts, I think has its roots in fragmentation of society across several key ingredients. And the main thing is that 
the main key ingredient in my mind of those stable democracies is around increased and shared prosperity. That's where we have failed. We haven't, we have managed to have increased prosperity, but not necessarily well shared. I don't think the future will have the kind of neat organized consensus that we've had in the last few decades post the world wars. Instead, I think we're living through a regime change. This is a hundred year event. This is the final straw that broke the camel's back. The current regime is over. What we don't know what the next one will be. It's one in a series of events that question and corrode the current consensus around our political economy, which has been held together by inertia. And when that inertia goes, what we're going to see is a degeneration of the post-war rules-based consensus. And I'm very confident that it is going to be replaced by some form of imperialism from a bunch of countries that I think you can predict. And there will be no reciprocity in those ties in those, from those countries. We cannot expect they're going to look after us because you know what? Their shutters are going up and they're going up for everybody, including little old New Zealand. For us, it's really very much about finding a different way. We have to chart a new path. Yes, we have to manage those old ties because these imperialists are going to be big economies, powerful, military, all of those things. But we have to grow new ones because the reality is we cannot trust them to hold their side of bargains. The reason I'm pitching this narrative to you today is because, in my mind, there is only one obvious place where we're going to find our future opportunities and where we're going to find the shared values around progress, optimism, and connectedness. These are values that I think we will find will still exist in certain parts of the world. I think we're going to find that much more in Asia than we're going to find in other parts of the world. This is where we must find our allies for what comes next. But make no mistake, this pandemic is the final straw in creating a change that is going to be very significant. New Zealand has a very big role to play in deciding our future. We have to choose which path we take. Thanks. Cheering. On that cheery note, um, perhaps we'll balance this with this relative pessimism with some optimism from John McKinnon. <laughs> no pressure. Well, kia ora tato, and as it is uh, Chinese Language Week, and um, I don't want to say I disagree with anything you said, Chamberbeel, but I'm not sure I agree, so I'll just be neutral and let your words speak for themselves. My task is a little bit different because I'm going to talk about the New Zealand-China relationship in the sort of the age, or as you were saying, Paul, in the sort of age of the uh, COVID has, is on us, even if it isn't yet finished. And thank you for hosting this event, and thanks to Charlie and his team for sort of bringing it together against all the odds. I'm slightly alarmed to see a whole lot of people in the room who actually know quite a lot about China, most of whom I know, which is a little unfortunate because I normally rely on the fact that the people I talk to know less than me. But anyway, we'll just see how we go. But I do want to, um, not so much, it, it's not so much a pessimism versus an optimism contrast, Paul. It's more about trying to inject some understanding of what is happening in terms of one of these critical relationships. And uh, far be it from me to label um, who might be an imperialist power. But anyway, I'm sure the people in this room can figure that out for themselves very, very re readily. But for New Zealand, I think there, there are a number of key relationships that we have, and one of them is with China. And it's not to say that in any of those relationships we necessarily agree with everything that the particular country does, 
But the reality is, is that we need to sustain and nurture those relationships because they are very important to our well-being and to our welfare. And that's as much now and in the past, and I would surmise also in, in the future. How we calibrate that, that, that's a different matter, and, and that's something that I think we are going to have to work very hard at over the next few years. But I, for myself, I can't see that a country like China, or for that matter the United States or Europe, or whatever, or countries in Asia, are going to be less important to us than they are now. Now, if we look at the elements which bind us together uh, with China, I analyse them in three terms. Everything's going to be about three, by the way. There are three speakers tonight, so everything's going to be three. That's a very uh, Chinese numerate sort of, uh, sort of approach. But one is political, one is commercial and economic, and one is uh, what the Chinese call people-to-people. -people. And actually, those links occur with all other major relationships that we have, but they'll be in different mixtures, mm. different compositions, uh, depending on the country in question. But with China, and I think it's quite, it's, it's quite important to understand this, the political relationship is very, very important as the foundation for everything else that happens. And so the ability of New Zealanders to engage at a high political level with China is actually very important. And it's one thing which has probably suffered or is suffering from the fact of COVID and the fact that we can no longer have the sort of interactions that we maybe had used to have in terms of summit meetings and so on. So next year, this city is hosting, uh, is going to be hosting APEC, uh, but it's going to be a virtual APEC. And one of the advantages of APEC for us is it allows a New Zealand Prime Minister to consort very readily with a number of other leaders of other countries, as well as the institutional and organisational benefits that arise from that. And that will not happen in the same way next year. And I can quite understand why that decision was taken. It's very hard to run a blended or hybrid summit. But the fact is that it will mean that the benefits that New Zealand as a country of our size gains from being part of these larger groups, some of that will be lost. And part of that loss will be with, with China because we meet with the Chinese Premier, we meet with the Chinese President and that's a good thing to be doing. Now it's going to rely on people making trips and that's going to be harder at the moment. I mean I agree, I think it will sort itself out over the next 12 months but there's going to be a period of time where actually our international interactions have been much less than they used to be, and certainly that's an issue with China. But the reason I say that the political is important, if you look back, and, and again, this is my three reference point, there have been sort of roughly three periods in Chinese history which rather neatly, at least in my view, match three periods of our engagement with China. So the period from 1949 to the 1970s, which was really the Mao era, we, of course, did not have relations with the People's Republic. So there was a pretty... Um, odd situation there. We knew China was important, but we, we felt constrained in terms of opening up uh, relations with Beijing. And then from the mid-70s through to, uh, say, about 2012 or something, was the period where we did establish relations, but also China embarked on a course of integrating its economy with the rest of the world, and we benefited hugely from that. That's what I call the Deng era, and China became rich. It was important, but it became rich. Now we have the era of Xi Jinping, and in a sense what's happening is that China's becoming powerful. And that, is, I think, is something of a challenge for people in this country and in a lot of other parts of the world, because they're used to looking at China through a certain lens and to see China not just as an important country and a rich country, 
but a country which has the muscle to be able to exercise influence on the world is something which is a bit novel and, and it's, it's certainly putting some stresses which I'll come back to in a moment. But from a New Zealand point of view, those three strands I mentioned, the economic, the political and the cultural, they've prevailed throughout that period but in different ways. Critically for us, and importantly because of the way New Zealanders often think about these sort of relationships, we benefited hugely from two things. One, the growth in the Chinese economy, and two, the negotiation of a free trade agreement in 2000, which was signed in 2008. And in effect, we have a situation in which China, specifically the rather loosely defined Chinese middle class, want to consume a lot of the goods and services we produce, whether that's food, whether it's scenery, as in Lord of the Rings, or whether it's, uh, whether it's education. I won't speak much about education because I'm sure Jenny will, Jenny will cover that. But I think by mentioning education and tourism, you can understand how COVID has affected us in that particular relationship because those two sectors have been very deeply affected, not just through the China connection, but more broadly than that. And so the, the fall off in international students, the fall off in international tourists, that's having a real effect on our economy on on what's happening in our society. So that's been something which has been difficult and it plays through into the third one which is the people-to-people contacts and one of the changes which has taken place in New Zealand over the last I suppose 10, 20 or so years has been a significant increase in the Asian communities in this country, resident in this country. So people-to-people links to use a Chinese phrase are not just about people here going off to China and discovering that you know they actually do do Tai Chi in the parks and all that sort of thing, but actually there are people in this city and this country who have that background and are now part of our society. And that's something which I think is important, it's very enriching, it's also something which is different from what has happened in the past. I mean Chinese Language Week I think is a great proclamation of the value of learning languages It's not something which, regrettably, many people take up, but anyway, it's there to be promoted and so on and so forth. But I think we still have quite a uh, disconnected view of this. We see these things as happening within Chinese communities or with China, but not happening to us as people, you know, like me or others in this room like me. And that, I think, is something we have to... um, move on from and it's perhaps part of what you were saying Shamabil we need to be thinking new thoughts about how in fact New Zealand connects with this world and how what that means the fact that New Zealand actually is now a very diverse society. Paul Spoonley who's a professor here at Massey will say New Auckland is one of the most diverse cities ethnically speaking in the world and that change has happened probably in the last 20 or 30 years And it does mean that New Zealand and New Zealand's political leaders are responding to different pressures and different uh, voices than they used to be a little while back. So that people-to-people link we talk about loosely is something which actually now is here in this country. It's not just something which happens uh, externally to or to people like me. This, you know, you know, I don't know whether I've come across as positive or optimistic, but just to make sure I don't come across as too positive or optimistic, I have to say, I think at the moment, you know, one of the critical international relationships is between China and the United States. Inside to say it's not in very good shape at the moment. And that is leaving aside the, the merits or the demerits of either side in this thing. It's not very good for a country like us. Because we have to find a way of navigating between these differing pressure points, these differing viewpoints, 
about what is right and what is not right, who's right, who's wrong, you know, is it climate change, is it the WTO, is it the South China Sea, is it Hong Kong, is it whatever, whatever, and it's not easy. Because of the way we are and the sort of country we are, we have equities in China, we have equities in the United States, we have equities all over the world. We are a very connected society, but we're also one which is, as you say, we're at the end of the world. I wouldn't quite say we're a dot, but anyway, we're probably not much bigger. And uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, China looms very large now. It's basically our most significant uh, economic and commercial partner by quite a distance. We, of course, in Chinese terms, are very, very small. And that, you know that, that's fine. That, that's the reality of our, our country and our size and so on and so forth. But in this era that we have now, where we're suddenly finding that everybody's putting up their borders, putting up sort of protectionist barriers, it's more of a challenge than it might have been. Our, our welfare, our well-being has been predicated on ready access to markets globally. And that is something I think from our point of view we still need to be able to uh, fight for and argue for because it's crucial to the standard of living that people in this, in this country have. So I think I've probably exhausted my uh, 10 minutes, Paul, so I'll pause there, but I know I've uh, probably opened myself up to lots of interesting questions. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Professor Jenny Dixon, who will find a pathway between the two gentlemen. Kia ora tato. Thank you very much, Paul. Paul briefly outlined my role at the University of Auckland, and I would just like to say that one of my great pleasures in my portfolio is the oversight of the North Asia Cape. So I've been asked to make some comments on the uh, current environment for university engagement in respect of our North Asia partnerships and to reflect a little bit on our future. So I've got, a, I've got several points I'd like to make. And the first is kind of fairly self-evident, and that is that the world of universities is changing quite quickly. So across the world, university vice-chancellors have been reflecting on whether COVID-19 will force us to reduce our global ambitions. Now, of course, it won't. Our university sector has endured over many years and ridden successive waves of challenges. Universities by their very nature are global in reach and outlook, and we've developed strong relationships with peer universities in North Asia over several decades. The most recent manifestation of this global outlook has been quite different from what it was in the past. And of course, what we've seen is the rapid mobility of students and staff. And we've come to believe that this is the new normal. Our, so our research has travelled the globe with ease. It's been pretty easy to get on a plane and go to a com an overseas conference. There are some in this room who have spent several decades travelling regu regularly to China. There are others amongst us who regularly visit South Korea, Japan and China to pursue business interests. Then the world was hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and we were grounded, and we're still grounded. International students could not reach us. Our domestic students could not travel abroad to undertake student exchanges. International conferences and meetings were cancelled uh, and research collaborations slowed down. So the pandemic, through the economic dependence of New Zealand universities on international student recruitment into sharp relief. Although we knew it was a high-risk strategy, 
It has brought many benefits, both global and local. And I want to just say a little bit about what they are. International education generates jobs. It helps grow the local economy. It helps attract skilled talent that stays on after finishing their university qualifications. It enriches and supports our domestic education system as well as providing educational opportunities for New Zealanders. It is also part of New Zealand's diplomatic outreach, while at the same time serving to increase the cultural competency of New Zealanders. The pandemic and its consequences have given New Zealand universities cause to think about their purpose and to rethink their focus. Here at Auckland, we are reviewing our strategic plan for the next decade and taking the opportunity to think about the kind of university we want to be in the future, including our size, our shape and our composition. The pandemic has accelerated issues such as the need for higher education reform and government funding, the role of New Zealand universities in the national economy and our contribution to innovation in many fields. It has not, however, reduced our appetite for international engagement. And if anything, the pandemic and other global events are only strengthening and highlighting the importance of international connections. And now to my second point. The current COVID-19 and likely post-COVID world has an Asia focus. Global gravity, and we see this very clearly in international education, is tilting to Asia. More and more students are choosing to remain in the region to study instead of going abroad. Other students from outside the region are choosing to travel to Asia to study instead of Europe or the US, and some of them come to New Zealand as well. To this we can add the development of regionalism and protectionism. Our world now, as Shamabil was saying, looks very different to what it was not so long ago. Furthermore, Asian universities are rising in rankings, including some of the leading universities in China, and that was very evident in a recent Times Higher Education Annual Summit that was held. However, we have been investing in strong relationships in North Asia. New Zealand universities have engaged in reciprocal collaboration, we've built social and cultural capital, social capital through various initiatives, and we recognise the, the need to learn more about our close neighbours. In 2007, the University of Auckland launched the New Zealand Centre at Peking University in Beijing. Its purpose was to enable New Zealand academics to forge relationships with new colleagues at Peking U and to teach a New Zealand Studies course annually. And Charlie Gao was one of the first interns at the centre. Now its success has seen all New Zealand universities join the centre. Given our strong connections, I'm talking specifically here about the University of Auckland, we put our hands up to bid to host the North Asia Cape in 2017 and were delighted when we won that round. And we have this year just launched a similar New Zealand centre at the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, and all eight New Zealand universities have signed up to that. Auckland's engagement in North Asia has been enhanced through its involvement in three international networks of leading peer universities, Universitas 21, the Association of Pacific Rim Universities, otherwise known as APRU, and the worldwide university networks encompassing research and educational innovation. And these networks 
they're so important in times when you actually can't travel face to face. So APRU, with over 50 members, has five partner universities, and these are all leading universities in Japan, 12 in China, and Hong Kong SAR, two in Taipei, five in South Korea. Universitas 21 has five in the region, while the Worldwide University Network has four. Working across borders in politically neutral settings is really important as we come together to solve research and policy challenges in the region, and particularly when there's a lot of geopolitical tensions at play. So thirdly, looking beyond 2020. For me, looking out to the years ahead, I'm enormously excited about the future of our relationships with North Asia. We know they're strong and they have the potential to be more, and I think this will open up further. But we also have to be practical. The forces of change and international tensions will challenge these relationships and us. And it's here I looked to the independence of our universities and the relationships they forged over two decades or more, like the New Zealand centres in Beijing, more recently New Delhi, and many other research collaborations that go back a long way. At the heart of all of these are academics here and in North Asia. They share a commitment to what they're doing and I believe these person-to-person -person connections will remain strong. Interestingly too, we have seen this year a massive wave of students applying to study here. There's huge demand. They're attracted to New Zealand by safety, security and stability. Students are our future and they remain globally minded. But of course, right now, our border is closed. It will reopen gradually over 2021, and we're told perhaps more, more firmly by 2022. That's still quite a long way out, though. This will see us returning to meet face-to-face -face with our partners in North Asia and students returning to study. Government is calling on the sector to reflect on how it delivers its teaching to international students. And the government wants us to diversify, that is to broaden the range of countries from which our international students come. Our connections though with North Asia remain strong and we face some tough years, but our relationships will dig deep into our research and our educational collaborations involving various forms of blended courses that involve study at home, study offshore and study online. Um, and we've been undertaking a number of quite exciting initiatives at Auckland, including the establishment of two learning centres in China with two very close partners in Chongqing and Harbin. There are some outstanding issues, of course. Elephant in the room issues. These are sustainability, climate change and US-China relations. We won't travel the way we used to. Virtual learning and virtual engagement is becoming commonplace. We're all getting used to those Zoom meetings. And on China, we must be open about geopolitical tensions, yet remind ourselves of the opportunities for our students and scholars and forge a way through with a view to the long-term relationship. So in conclusion, the topic of today's conversation is post-COVID, New Zealand's mahi in the North Asia region. It's almost framed as a question, and I have an answer. Universities remain global institutions committed to our relationships with China, Japan and South Korea. Our collaborative mahi is needed now more than ever. Thank you.
On behalf of the North Asia Cape, I would like to thank our panelists for participating in our event. From the discussion, it is clear that whatever challenges and opportunities lie ahead, North Asia will be a key region for New Zealand. For more podcasts, please check out the Council's website, www.nzchinacouncil.org.nz, or listen on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.